Welcome back to The Reeducation. This episode examines why so many intellectuals have chosen to proclaim solidarity with the movement that conducted the worst pogrom against Jews since the Holocaust. What is it about revolutionary violence that seems to excite and not repulse so many women and men of letters? My guest is the founder and editor of Liberties, Leon Wieseltier. were being carried out, many of which we would not learn about until later. There are many Gazans of goodwill, many Palestinians conscious, who abhor violence, as do you, as do I, who abhor the targeting of civilians, as do you, as do I. who were able to breathe. They were able to breathe for the first time in years. It was exhilarating. That was Russell Ricards offering a small crowd some sinister babble. For the Gazans, he tells us, the scenes of Hamas savages slitting the throats, displaying young women on the back of trucks, burning whole families in their homes, and live-streaming these atrocities for the world to see, well... It was all so exhilarating, even for Palestinians who despise violence and the deliberate targeting of civilians, even for Russell Ricards himself. Well, this man is not a mental patient. He's not a cult leader. He's not a fringe activist wearing a sandwich board, sputtering about the Rothschilds and the Bilderbergs. He is a professor of history at Cornell University with a PhD from Columbia. His book, we are an African people, independent education, black power, and the radical imagination, won the Hooks Institute National Book Award, so named for the famed civil rights leader, Dr. Benjamin Hooks. Russell Ricards is a member in good standing of the American Republic of Letters, and he is not alone. Uh, similarly, I think, uh, yes, uh, uh, understanding uh, Hamas, Hezbollah as uh, social movements that are progressive, that are on, on the left, that are part of a global left, is extremely important. That does not stop us from uh, being critical of certain dimensions of um, both movements. It doesn't, um, it doesn't stop those of us who are interested in nonviolent politics from raising the question of, um, uh, uh, of whether there are other options besides violence. That was radical feminist scholar Judith Butler in 2006 telling an audience at Berkeley that Hamas and Hezbollah were part of the global left and a progressive coalition. Now, I should say she has evolved. This month, in the London Review of Books, Butler scolded Harvard student groups admirably for portraying Palestinian violence as the continuation of Israeli violence by saying Israel was solely to blame for the Hamas atrocities. She writes, That is no way to recognize the autonomy of Palestinian action. Good for her. But here's the thing. Butler's piece provoked a furious response online from readers of the London Review of Books. She was accused of treachery against the left in general and the liberation movement for Palestinians, all because she clearly condemned without reservation a mass murder spree. Butler has evolved, but her disciples still act as if Hamas is their ally. Closer to home, Zarina Gruel, a Yale professor of American studies, 
took to X, formerly Twitter, to respond to a post decrying Hamas's targeting of civilians, saying, quote, Settlers are not civilians. This is not hard, end quote. In addition to being an apology for the October 7 pogrom, Gruel's post is illiterate. Hamas attacked Jews who lived and were attending a concert inside the pre-1967 borders of the state of Israel. These people are not settlers. What an offensive thing to say. And the list goes on. Friend of the show and future guest, Gabi Brahm, a few years back wrote about an Italian philosopher, Gianni Vatimo, who has expressed his support for military aid to Hamas and his desire to shoot a Zionist. Writing in Fathom, Brahm writes, There can be no doubt about the equivalence between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism in practice among those who, like Vatimo, unabashedly call for an end to the Jewish state and Jewish sovereignty, end quote. All of this is a pattern. Most universities today have purged Zionists from their Middle East studies departments. On campus, the near consensus among faculty is that the world's only Jewish state is illegitimate and responsible for the horrors inflicted on it by its enemies. So how did all of this happen? When you think about it for a second, it doesn't make any sense. Hamas is an organization dedicated to the Muslim conquest of Israel. That means that if Hamas were to succeed, they would impose Quranic law on all of the territory that it controlled. And that means, because we've seen it in Gaza, that Hamas will punish gays and lesbians with jail and torture just for being gay or lesbian. Its religious police have shut down barber shops and salons that have the audacity to cater to both men and women. And speaking of women, Hamas forces women to cover their face and hair in hijab. And its very charter openly endorses the killing of Jews. Hamas is not part of a progressive coalition. It's the Palestinian version of the Ku Klux Klan or the Nazis. Hamas are not humanists. They are fascists. So why is it that so many of our allegedly most learned citizens find themselves rationalizing, defending, and in some cases, even celebrating the barbarism of Islamic fundamentalists? Well, the answer means that we have to go back to that first clip that we played from Professor Ricards. Remember this line? Who were able to breathe. They were able to breathe for the first time in years. Okay, so that is a mangled paraphrase of Franz Fanon. Quote, it's not because the Indo-Chinese discovered a culture of their own that they revolted. Quite simply, this was because it became impossible to breathe in more than one sense of the word. That is from Fanon's seminal work, The Wretched of the Earth. Its first chapter, On Violence, provides both the lexicon, the language, and the original arguments many intellectuals employ today to explain their solidarity with fanatic butchers. For example, Fanon coined the term decolonization, which I'm sure you've heard a gazillion times since October 7th. And you can find it all over the social media accounts, petitions, and academic papers of professors and student activists today. He's also the first writer, by the way, to use this phrase lived experience, which is also ubiquitous in academia. Anyway, so who was this guy? Well, I have to say he's a pretty fascinating story. Born in Martinique in 1925, Fanon was an impatient and brilliant polymath. In his short life, he died at age 36. He was a psychiatrist a revolutionary, and a social critic who would join Algeria's National Liberation Front, or FLN, as it was waging a bloody struggle for independence. Now, the key event for Fanon, I think, would have to be November 1, 1954. This is when 
the FLN conducts a series of bombings in Algiers, kicking off the revolution that would end in Algerian independence eight years later. This is not the first insurrection in Algeria. This kind of stuff goes back to the 1920s. But it was the first sort of major action from the FLN, which would eventually become the leaders of Algeria after independence. Okay, so Fanon at this time, he, well, he was a, a practicing psychiatrist, and he was working at a hospital in Blida. And I want to read now a short passage from the Fanon biography, Philosopher of the Barricades, by Peter Hudis. Quote, An increasing number of his patients were victims of the carnage unleashed by the French military crackdown. Many of his patients were civilians who had been brutally tortured by the French and were suffering psychotic disorders as a result. Others had seen family members disappear or murdered and were suffering from severe depression or suicidal tendencies, end quote. So it should be said here that Fanon was already sympathetic to Algerian independence. When he arrived in the country in 1953, he experienced firsthand what he would say was a kind of racism that he didn't really know in France and certainly not in his native Martinique. And the hospital where he worked, for example, would segregate European and Algerian patients. And by treating the victims of the French Empire, as it were, I would say that Fanon became radicalized. So he joined the FLN in 1954, and he would allow the rebels to use his hospital to both hide its fighters, but also he would treat their fighters. So this is the backdrop to his most influential work, Wretched of the Earth. He wrote it in Tunisia because he was exiled for his activities with the FLN as he was dying from leukemia in 1960 and 1961. In his introduction to the 60th anniversary edition, Homi K. Baba writes that when his wife Josie shared some of the rapturous reviews of that first edition, Fanon responded, that won't give me back my bone marrow. So as the cancer ate away at Fanon's skeleton, he eventually traveled to America, a country he despised. He called it the country of lynchers. And all the while, he was accompanied by a CIA officer. And on his way to America to get treatment in Bethesda, he stopped in Rome for a last meeting with his close friend, the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. According to Baba, by this time he was too weak to even speak. Now I bring all of this up because Fanon's final work takes a turn away from some of his earlier writings. For example, like in Black Skin, White Masks, his other really big book, Fanon concludes that white and black people should strive to free themselves from, quote, the inhuman voices of their respective ancestors so that a genuine communication can be born, end quote. Those are the words of a humanist, someone who rejected barbarism on principle. The tone changes considerably in Wretched of the Earth, and in particular, its first chapter on violence. And I want to read a little bit from it here. Quote, in its bare reality, decolonization reeks of red-hot cannonballs and bloody knives. For the last can be the first only after a murderous and decisive confrontation between the two protagonists. End quote. So who are these two protagonists? Well, for Franz Fanon, it was the colonized and the colonist. The colonized subject, Fanon correctly observed, is subjected to violence to keep him in line with the exploitation of his native land. He's tortured, he is beaten, he is jailed. As Fanon writes of the colonized, as soon as they are born, it is obvious to them that their cramped world, riddled with taboos, can only be challenged by out-and-out -out violence, end quote. Fanon wrote this book for the peasants, and that's his word. He would call them peasants. That's the class of people that he really believed were the true representatives of the native lands conquered by European powers. 
All right. So since arriving in Algeria in 1953, Fanon would take treks to the countryside. He would meet with these poor farmers. And I just say he was fascinated by them. He wrote about them as a psychiatrist, but you could tell he had a lot of sympathy. For example, he was fascinated by the idea that a lot of these, again, his word, Algerian peasants, didn't really believe in insanity in the Western sense. As a psychiatrist, he was, of course, very interested in this because they would say that a person would be possessed by demons. And this theme would come up again in Wretched of the Earth. So I just want to point this out. He's writing this book, what he sees for the sort of authentic Algerians, the authentic people of the third world. But there's an irony, because even though Fanon wrote this book for, pardon it, the phrase, the wretched of the earth, it was far more influential with the planet's elites, and in particular, European and then eventually American intellectuals. And here, we have to return to Sartre. He was Fanon's most important patron at the end of Fanon's life, and was a really powerful cultural figure in France in the 1950s, 1960s, and the West in general, I should say. So Sartre wrote the introduction to that first edition of Wretched of the Earth. And here you can really see in that essay that Sartre writes the roots of this moral illiteracy that leads so many intellectuals in 2023 to cheer or rationalize the October 7 massacre. And in this respect, Sartre is using Fanon as a weapon, and a weapon to shame his fellow French citizens. And you have to remember the context here, because in 1961, Algeria is in the middle of its independence struggle, but it's still technically a French colony. Wouldn't be that way for much longer, but that's the context of Sartre's argument. All right, so I'm going to now read a longer passage from Sartre's introduction, but I think it's worth it. So, quote, our victims know us by their wounds and shackles. That is what makes their testimony irrefutable. They only need to know what we have done to them for us to realize what we have done to ourselves. Is this necessary? Yes, because Europe is doomed. But you will say once again, we live in the metropolis, and we disapprove of extremes. It's true. You are not colonists, but you are not much better. They were your pioneers. You sent them overseas. They made you rich. You warned them, if they shed too much blood, you would pretend to disown them. The same way a state, no matter which one, maintains a mob of agitators, provocateurs, and spies abroad whom it disowns once they are caught. You who are so liberal, so humane, who take the love of culture to the point of affectation, you pretend to forget that you have colonies where massacres are committed in your name. End quote. All right, so this is important because Sartre, who, you know, would at times profess to be a humanist, is making the same mistake so many 20th century intellectuals made by negating individuals and speaking only of people as abstract groups. Like Fanon, there are colonists and colonizers. You know, you are not a colonist, but you're part of the class of people who benefits from them. And in this view, there's no point, let alone, you know, taking any kind of moral comfort in dissenting from your state's violence or participating, even if you take it to its extreme democratic politics, while you are still benefiting from that violence. That is the almost, you could say, I want to say it's not nihilism, but that, that's the sort of end result of Sartre's formulation here. You know, you cannot escape your, the blame for any of this. All of this violence is overdue, that kind of thing. And one can see a similar dynamic today, which is you cannot judge anything that the Algerian liberation movement does because you are guilty and that's it. And here I want to quote from Nathan Tankis, 
who wrote a book about the Fed called Picking Losers. He's part of the Jacobin crowd, if anybody is aware of that magazine. And I want to just quote this because this is a tweet from a day after the Hamas pogrom. Quote, I don't want anyone to die, but I also won't participate in contextless haranguing of military strategy launched from a ghetto, whether it's Jewish partisans during World War II or, yes, even Hamas. End quote. Oh, despicable. Anyway, Tankus here reduces his entire analysis, much like Sartre, much like Fanon, to what side has more power. The powerful are guilty because they have power. And so he elides any kind of moral question about a deliberate massacre of Jews by clinically referring to this pogrom as a, quote, military strategy. It's absurd. Anyway, I should say that Fanon goes even further in some ways in his analysis in that first chapter of Wretched of the Earth. Because, you know, he not only believes that violence is inevitable in a liberation struggle, which one can understand analytically, you can disagree or, or agree, I don't agree with that, but he also writes, and this is a dangerous idea, that violence is cleansing in and of itself. And here I want to just quote this here from Fanon again. Quote, at the individual level, violence is a cleansing force. It rids the colonized of their inferiority complex, of their passive and despairing attitude. It emboldens them and restores their self-confidence. End quote. Okay, so what Fanon is really saying is that the act of killing one's oppressor is part of the transformation into a new man whose mind is no longer colonized. And I just want to say, movements that promise to create a new man or a new person are almost always extremely dangerous. This was a promise, by the way, of Lenin and Trotsky at the beginning of the Russian Revolution. You can find this sort of talk in the 19th century with the French Revolution and the Jacobins themselves. I know that's a second reference to the Jacobins, but these were the real ones with the guillotines. This idea that you were going to try to restart human nature and get back to, you know, a, a true freedom or something like that, well, it's, it's almost always a red flag, whether it's a so-called liberation movement or, you know, it's Jim Jones leading a cult. It's always bad news, and it's one of the reasons why I find myself sort of more drawn to the Edmund Burke approach to things than, say, a Rousseau. But that's maybe for a different show. All right. So here, I just want to say, you know, after kind of criticizing Fanon, and I think rightfully so, for his last work, you have to remember, as I think I said earlier, Fanon is a much more complex thinker than the people who just quote a few lines of his out of context. So one of the things I've noticed in sort of doing the research for this episode is that nobody bothers to ever reference the other chapters of Wretched of the Earth. They mainly focus on that first one that deals with violence. But in those other chapters, there's a lot of interesting kind of complexity that Fanon brings to his analysis. And one of them is that he really does strongly warn that liberation movements can become new oppressors once they attain power, or rather to exchange one barbarism for another, which is what I thought was a nice phrase that he, he coined in, in an essay right before Wretched of the Earth called on a dying colonialism. Okay, I want to return to this idea that violence against one's oppressors is not only a, a form of liberation of a country, but it can also liberate an individual's mind. And I just have to say, I do not think that that's really true. And the proof of this, because we have the benefit recent history, is just look at what became of Algeria. Like the French before them, the regime that replaces them establishes intelligence services, a brutal military, and its leaders eventually became a kind of new exploitative class. And here I just want to give a little bit more details and sort of 
recent Algerian history. During Algeria's civil war in the 1990s, for example, the regime infiltrated their Islamic fundamentalists, insurrectionists, known as the GIA. And in this period, we know from a series of memoirs and books from former officers for the Algerian intelligence service that the organization was largely infiltrated. And so there were atrocities and some famous atrocities that would better be known as provocations, which is a kind of an old Soviet tactic of infiltrating opposition groups and then getting them to commit terrible things so they lose credibility with the population. And at least there is a lot of evidence at this point that this is the kind of really cynical game that the Algerian regime that came out of the FLN was doing in the 1990s against their fundamentalist opponents. And, you know, the repression continues. To this day, Algeria has hundreds of political prisoners. And I'm just going to pick one, Mohammed Ben Lima, who is a military whistleblower, similar to some of these guys from the 2000s. You know, we, we have reports from credible human rights organizations that he was tortured and denied food and water in solitary confinement in 2021. All right. So I, none of this is to say that the French should return to ruling Algeria. That is reactionary idiocy. Rather, it's to point out that the fetishization of violence as an overdue debt or as a process for emancipating the minds of the oppressed leads to more repression once independence is achieved. Think about it. When the leader of a liberation movement can summon spectacular violence, it's just too great a temptation to consolidate personal power later on. And I would say this is why so many third world countries that gained independence through violent struggle suffer under autocracy today. It is very difficult once you introduce violence into this political discourse. And no one is denying that being the subject of a colonial power is experiencing violence. That is, of course, true. But what I would say is that when you have nonviolent movements, such as Gandhi's independence movement for India or Martin Luther King's struggle for civil rights in the United States, the results are almost always going to be much better because the leadership does not have that option to apply violence to one's adversaries or enemies. Okay, now I want to end this monologue by getting back to the present moment. Whatever one thinks about Franz Fanon and his analysis of empires and their subjects, it does not apply to Israel in any conceivable way. This analogy, so casually repeated in slogans of student groups and various literary journals, is a lie. There is no mother country for Jews to return to outside of Israel. The war in 1948 that created the Jewish state was not a battle between colonizer and colonist. Rather, it was a struggle between a people who had survived the Holocaust and the entire Arab world. In 1948, the goal for the Arab armies was to drive the Jews into the sea, same as it was in 1967 and 1973, and same as it is today for Hamas. And sadly, the intellectuals so exhilarated by the bloodlust of these fanatics. I like to be in Africa.
Well, today we are really lucky and fortunate to have, in my opinion, one of the greatest public intellectuals of our time, editor and founder of Liberties, which I, I was honored to write for the first issue of, and someone who I think made his reputation as the editor of what's called the back of the book for the New Republic when it was a good magazine, and is just very sort of generous intellectual, one of my favorites. Leon Wieseltier, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I'm just not sure how to respond to that vicious assault. Oh, really? Mind. Well, I want to start off because our topic today is the history and asking the question why intellectuals have historically seemed to have been attracted like moths to flame to barbarous movements. And so I want to start off by reading you something. And this is from a Columbia University professor by the name of Joseph Massad. I'm sure you're familiar oh, with yeah. him. I want to quote from his piece on October 8th. This is 24 hours after the world learned of the Hamas pogrom. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read here the snippet, and I want to get yours. Perhaps the major achievement of the resistance in the temporary takeover of these settler colonies is the death blow to any confidence that Israeli colonists had in their military and its ability to protect them. Reports promptly emerged that thousands of Israelis were fleeing through the desert on foot to escape the rockets and gunfire, with many still hiding inside settlements more than 24 hours into the resistance offensive. Those who had not already fled were being evacuated by the army from more than two dozen colonies near Gaza. In the interest of safeguarding their lives and their children's future, the colonists' flight from these settlements may prove to be a permanent exodus. They may have finally realized that living on land stolen from another people will never make them safe. The level of military engagement between the Palestinian fighters and Israeli colonial forces is wide-ranging. It has included more than two dozen battle sites, with Hamas declaring 50 Israeli military targets for its operation. So my question to you is, what do you think drives a tenured professor at an Ivy League university to call a mass slaughter that included rape and abduction, a military operation, and to celebrate in such excited prose. Well, the same thing that drove many modern intellectuals to celebrate violence, or I should say celebrate preferred violence, by devising a vocabulary that obscures the reality of, of what happened. You know, I, when I listened to you reading that asshole's piece, aside from its utter and complete heartlessness, yes, which is obvious. I mean, you know, which the man has, you know, a heart of stone because, you know, how should I put it? This atrocity, condemning this atrocity should not be hard, whatever your politics are. Right. I mean, the, 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 the the, the quality of the savagery was very high. And clearly he doesn't have a syllable of empathy or compassion, or I would have to say, based on this text, decency. I uh, mean, he, he goes on to, to describe, he uses the word pogrom to describe Israeli bombing. Well, he should give that word back, because well, someone as heartless as this has no right to that word. They forfeited the right. You know, it's interesting. Everyone is now calling what happened in the South 
in Israel of pogrom. Do you know how many people died in the Kishinev pogrom in 1903? The great history transforming pogrom that led to the birth of modern Zionism in some quarters and to masterpieces of literature. 49. Mm. 49 people. So to give you some sense of scale, magnitude about we have, what we have witnessed. But, you know, getting back to your question, Orwell said that there are certain mistakes that only intellectuals can make. Right. And, you know, there is this man, Mossad, has been operating. I've seen some of his writing and others like him have been operating not just in an anti-Zionist pro-Palestinian context for a long time, but as I say, in a context in which they choose to re-describe reality to suit their needs. For example, as you read it, I was thinking, listening to the words, and I, I wrote down a few. The most, what, the most notorious one is resistance. Yes, yes let's the talk about that. The minute you call something resistance, it's noble. Everything that needs to be proven seems already to have been proven. And it is a way of relabeling now, if, if, if somebody would like to make the argument that what happened in the settlement, in the, in, in the villages and towns, because they're not settlements, this is Israel. Yeah, that's another oh. elision on his part. Yeah, yes. right. If anyone want to make the argument, want to make the argument, wants to make the argument that this is resistance, bring it on. We could have an argument about what resistance means and what the morality of resistance is and so on. But for someone like him, he says resistance, and it's like a it's like a magical word, like open sesame. Or when he uses the word colonists for the Israelis, the Jews who were slaughtered, right? There was nothing colonial about this, unless you believe, which obviously he does, that the entire that all of Israel is a colony. In which, which case, itself is a barbaric position. Which itself is an invitation to violence. Yes. Yes. Or when he uses the when he describes this pogrom as unoffensive. Well, that's the other thing: it, the military operation, the idea. Well, that's right. That it's, it's this clinical language to describe. Well, it's it's that's right. It's 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 un it's not evaluative language. It's in some ways technical or ideological language, and again, it's 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 the language that people use for purposes of analysis. Evaluative language sometimes is not good for analysis, but I've always thought, I once wrote this many years ago, that there are certain kinds of events in the world that if you can be unemotional about them, if you do not hate them, then you do not, you have not properly understood what has happened. I mean, it's really that simple. This was in the context of a debate at Columbia many years ago with a dear friend of mine, a French philosopher, who, who was arguing about that, that perhaps the time has come to stop hating the perpetrators, to stop that hatred is a pointless emotion. And I made the argument that hatred is sometimes proof that you have correctly understood what we're talking about. And that there is, I'm going to write, I have to do an essay for my next issue about this. God help me. But one of the things I'm going to write about is the absence of revulsion from certain camps and about the wisdom that is to be found in revulsion. 
many years ago, Leon Cass wrote an essay for me about bioethics called The Wisdom of Repugnance. And it's a phrase that stayed in my head. And this is one of those cases where if you're not revolted, you don't, you don't understand what just happened. You know, then I noticed that, you know, Mossad uses the word offensive. He talks about military targets. Right. If he wants to use technical, strictly military terms, then why should the Israeli army even consider restraining itself if they're fighting an army? Yes. But they're not fighting an army, as we know. So we're now, at least I am, in an emotionally impossible position. So one of the reasons, for for me, this is one of the things that happens, is violence is re-described as something that it isn't, or it's interpreted, and the interpretation is offered as an account of reality. You know, this is, and the thing, and I don't want to go on too long, because I'm sure you have another question, but, you know, the thing about violence is that It is always, whether it's perpetrators admitted or not, it is always in need of justification. Yes. Always. You know, senseless violence is, you know, as which is what we call, I don't know, serial killers or things like that. Though even they have opinions about why they're doing what they're doing. The man who massacred the Tree of Life synagogue, he had a worldview. He had an ideology. He didn't just have raw hatred. Was his ideology all that different from Mossad's or, for that matter, Hamas? No, it's a different version of the same same way of dehumanizing people you're about to kill. Yes. And, you know, so, so violence has always needed some sort of justification. It's almost always had it. I mean, there are classes of people who are who can provide such justice? Well, that's what I want to get at. This is the bar. Now you talk, yeah. right? You you talk about intellectuals in the ancient world. There were prophets, there were sibyl, there were priests. Of course, there were kings. But you know, the the, the Catholic Church provided justifications for violence throughout the Middle Ages. So this this should not be. But I want I want to stop I want to stop you on that point. Yeah, of course, of course. The Catholic Church's justification of the horrific violence of crusades was at least part of the reason that we saw a a kind of independence movement from religious dogma in what we call the Enlightenment. There was a kind of revulsion of many intellectuals. After the Hundred Years' War, yeah. So it's there's something tragic about modern intellectuals who come from this, what, what used to be called a humanist tradition in some ways, dement themselves in such a way. And I want to get into, like, where does that start? Is that the French Revolution? Well, let's start, let's start actually, before we get to modernity, Let's start with something much older, which is the theory of just war. Okay. The theory of just war, which was already in the Middle Ages, a very sophisticated body of thought. And certainly by the time Grotius comes along and develops it, it's really a very fancy philosophical system, a fancy moral system. And clearly the theory of just war originated in the 
in the terrible feeling that whereas violence may be inevitable and violence may even be in some cases justified, the justification of violence, the cause in which violence is perpetrated, cannot be allowed to operate unrestrained, at least intellectually and morally. You know, the question of whether people adhere to the theory of just war when they're at war or when they commit act of violence is a separate question. But clearly that entire tradition of thought was devised to act as a break, not upon unjust violence only, but also upon just violence or justified violence. You know, I used to joke that the, you know, the unjust violence is the theory that it's just war. And there are people like that, but it's justified violence for which considerations about means and ends and considerations about proportionality in the use of violence and considerations of the ability of excessive cruelty and inhumanity to vitiate the justice of a cause, to make a a, a legitimate war no longer legitimate. I mean, all of this was devised precisely, and I think, you know, it's always a long shot in war just to, to think that 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 sophisticated moral considerations will be honored in the heat of battle or even in the planning for battle. But still, but still, there has been this centuries-long attempt to try to to confront justifications for violence with reasons for restraint, you know, to create a morality of war. And in my view, it's a very noble tradition because it is obviously based on the recognition that war is an ineradicable feature of human affairs. I mean, you know, in in recent years, we've had a kind of idiotic revival of interest in the Kellogg-Briand Pact among certain people on the left. That didn't turn out so well. But, but, you know, and, and a couple of days later, it was refuted by reality, as it were. But so I think that as, for as long as there has been justification for violence, there have been countervailing concepts and ideas that have tried to restrain it, direct it, hold it to a standard. And this is true even in... You know, the ancient book that I know best in the Torah, where you have both the commandment to the Israelites to commit genocide in Canaan. Yes. To wipe out the seven nations, seven nations, including their women and children, on, on, on based on the view that this would be the only effective way to wipe out the idolatrous religions that these people practiced because... Moses and or God will have noticed that in the desert, even when there were miracles and Moses existed, the Israelites were constantly tempted to follow strange gods. So on the one hand, there is this sacred commandment, and this is called, uh, you know, oh, oh, this, is, this, is, oh, this war is called the mitzvah, this war against seven nations. On the other hand, the there, are laws. In the... there are laws about how to yeah. treat non-combatants and there are laws of how to treat the natural world there are laws against against scorched earth policies that would that would despoliate the natural world and there are so 
there's always been this 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 kind of tragic confrontation. Isn't there like a, a, a passage in Exodus where Hashem chastises angels who oh, celebrated? You call him that, yes. Who chastised the angels who were celebrating the death? There is of the a midrash. Yeah. Oh, it's and, a midrash. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's a very one of the most famous midrashim. The Jews are singing and dancing on the other side of the Red Sea. Yeah. The Egyptians are drowning because the waters have fallen back into each other. And and God gets angry at Miriam, who is Moses' sister, is leading the celebration, the revelry. And he says, my creatures are drowning in the sea, and you are offering me song in right. this kind of right. angry, incredulous way. So, I mean, but uh, yes. that's that, that gets to your paradox, which is that the author, yeah, is, his creatures died because, according to the story, God killed them. I mean, so. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, of course, of course. Right. But, you know, if you want to, but of course, we don't, whether or not there is a God, we don't hear from him anymore. No, we don't. Right. And so unless you believe that the beauty of the changing leaves outside is is a message from God, and there are people who do, but I, I don't. This is, uh, you're so kind of... It's the modern period. Yeah, to bring it back, what, what you're saying is that, that these have been questions that people have been, that, that civilization has been asking itself yes. and grappling with long before Rousseau long before and Voltaire. Well, before Grotius, before Kant. Yes. Before, yes, long before. But then something happens, and yeah. we can say it's the beginning of modern politics. We we get the idea of left and right after the French Revolution. We have, of course, the Jacobins, many of whom themselves were intellectuals. And this event, which we may still be trying to understand, famous line from Showing Lie, ask, you know, I don't know yet when he was asked what do you think of the French Revolution. Oh. It's too soon to tell. It's too right? soon to tell, right? That is the event where we begin to see the kind of roots of what later becomes this language of, you know, well, we're, we're going to get to Fanon, like decolonization, but all of this kind of comes from that font of the French Revolution and the idea that there had to be great, you know, there had to be sort of a savage justice and that you know, we had to move history along. Yeah. So maybe you would just sort of talk about that. Well, yeah, look, there have been a couple of currents. There are a couple of currents that I see going into that. The first okay. one, of course, is the apocalyptic mentality and the old apocalyptic idea that the world has to be cleansed in blood. Okay, yes. That, that at the end, it's going to be an explosion and then there will be redemption and that, you know, and the expectation that any messianic outcome, and of course, Robespierre was a secular messianist, even if he did have a cult of the supreme being, there is this view that, so because of this association of violence with redemption, violence as the eve of redemption, violence as the condition of redemption, which you had in religious traditions and was, that was secularized, you know, even religious traditions, ancient ones, think of the the pre-redemptive violence as the birth pangs of the Messiah, is what they call it. Our Christian evangelical 
brothers and sisters have all kinds of peculiar beliefs about what's going to happen in the Holy Land when the day comes. And it is not a halcyon or Pacific vision, etc. So some of it is, I think, this idea that you, you can't have an end to history except in a paroxysm of some kind. Right. Sort of suits almost a kind of dramatic sense. Right. Also, it will involve the extirpation, the murder of all the bad guys, of all the sinners and so on. And that idea uh, obviously predates Robespierre and all that. Predates Lenin, predates yeah. Hitler. I mean, there is, then I was going to say, but, but you know, you have in, and in, in, in the French Revolution, you similarly have the redefinition of the enemy in a way that dehumanizes him. So that, you know, the French Revolution was interested not in culpable individuals, but in culpable classes of people. Right. Right. I mean, it, they, they simply took aristocrats in the tumbrils. I mean, it was not. And that kind of generalization for the purpose of justifying violence, generalization about whole groups or classes of people, is also one of the features of the mentality that we're talking about. Yes. You know, there are very, very few cases of people who acquiesce in or commit savagery against people whom they still regard as human beings. Right. I mean, that is so you need, there is this, as it were, preparatory state, which in the modern world was the work of ideology. You could argue that it was the work of ideology prior to the modern world, too, when people were defined as heretics and infidels and so on. But basically, if you look at, say, Leninist Bolshevik definitions or methods of dehumanization. And we should say that Leninists borrow so much of their discourse well, the, and their the, framework the, from the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the infidel becomes the deviationist. Right. Heretic becomes the deviationist. Again, a vocabulary is created in which people and reality can be redescribed so that it makes it easier to kill them. Yes. So that it makes it easier to kill them, you know? And certainly totalitarianism, I mean, the, the scholars of it have shown for a very long time the centrality of ideology in totalitarianism as a political instrument. But one way to, another way to think about it is as, 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 as a preparation for war, as a, prepar as a preparation for atrocities right that's a very... and, and you see it and, and you know and there is now a modern tradition of this you know in african atrocities they rely you know if you look at rwanda for example they relied they didn't even need a redefinition they relied upon the ancient tribal adjectives right if you were a tutsi you had to be killed right you see and but again, there is always this redescription of reality, always. And it doesn't matter how sophisticated the thinker or the writer is. If there is an interest in justifying violence of killing, I should I say, innocent human beings, right. civilians, non-combatants, use any term you want. Right. But if there is an interest in killing innocent civilians, then it has to be preceded by a long training in a redescription of re of, of and, these and, and that's why calling 
what the authors of the atrocity, a resistance, were calling it a military operation, are is so sinister. In their houses, in their towns. Yes. Settlers. Right. It's so sinister. And the language masks right. the crime, but enables the crime at the same enables time. Enables crime. That's correct. Both masking and enabling, though, because. That's correct. Um, That's correct. You know, one of the satisfying things about the Nuremberg trials, which I know you're not supposed to admire, though, of course, God knows I do, but is that sitting there in the dock with the people, with the monsters who committed these, this genocide, was Julia Stryker, who published the newspaper that provided the language for a very long time that prepared ordinary Germans to be able to follow orders. Yes. You know, and, Which is and why we don't right. say that the Nuremberg trials were an assault on German press freedoms. Right. But also they were right to include the ideologist as one of the perpetrators yes. of, of the atrocities, is my point, because they could not have been perpetrated without a change of a linguistic, a semantic and cultural environment of a certain kind. Okay, so I want to do a little level setting and just quickly... When did we start understanding authors or thinkers as intellectuals? When What's the birth of the modern intellectual as we understand it? Oh, that's a huge question. I know, and I don't want to get too caught up, but I, I want to just sort of... I guess the intellectual, the modern intellectual, what, we, what you mean by that, I think, is probably... Oh, this is such a hard question. You know, Harold Rosenberg once got sick of this question and said that an intellectual is anybody who carries a briefcase to work. <laughs> You know, and you can update that for laptops. If yeah, you yeah, right. You know, it's, I think of the modern intellectual, even though this is obviously an incomplete conception, as a writer and a thinker who does not earn his living from political powers to start with. I think that, that the modern intellectual may not be independent in his views. And as we know, modern intellectuals were, again, Rosenberg coined the term herds of independent minds. I mean, they were conformists and so on. But they were at least economically and socially independent of governments. They right. offered their services to governments, which is why I said it was an incomplete conception, just as they offered their services to revolutionary movements. But for me, that's part of it. Also, for me, it has to do with, and again, this is actually what I think about it in something that is continuous throughout the history of intellectual life. They apply philosophical and moral categories to the analysis of everyday life. They are not, what you mean by the modern intellectual is not technocrat or a scientist. Right. or an engineer, even though they may have things to contribute to the discussion and so on. But it really has to do with the, 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 the importation of philosophy and ethics into public discussion. That's what I regard as the role of the modern intellectual. Um, okay. I want to now read from you a, from a statement of the Jewish Law School Student Association at the City University of New York. Or do you have to? Okay. But it will get us into the next part of this conversation because right. they, they quote somebody who I want to talk about. All right. 
in this season of renewal and self-reflection, and as we begin the year 5784, right. the Jewish students at Cooney Law School, School of Law, wish to express our uncompromising solidarity with the Palestinian people in their righteous struggle for self-determination. This feeling is accompanied by a profound sense of grief over the lives that have been lost. We are steadfast in our belief that Zionism, as a political ideology predicated on theft and, and destruction, serves to imperil both Jews and Palestinians, even though its proponents only target the latter. In his analysis of the global anti-colonial struggle, Franz Fanon wrote, we revolt simply because for many reasons we can no longer breathe, and to quote, such is the case for the Palestinian people who have for generations been made to suffocate under the deadly weight of the Zionist project, the settler colonial enterprise promoted by anti-Semites within the British Empire following World War I has taken shape across decades of uninterrupted brutality. In 1948, Zionist militias unleashed a campaign of terror marked by mass murder and systemic sexual violence, raising over 500 Palestinian villages and forcing more than 750,000 Palestinians off their native lands. On it goes. They, they of course, have that yeah. quote from Fanon, yeah. which I want to get to, but these are maybe not intellectuals in the way that Mossad are, but they are people who are going to be our future lawyers, and they are in an institution of learning, and they have just offered well, a historical garbage to justify, again, a Well, program. what they were doing is they were moving words around like tokens on a board. Correct. They were, they were manipulating the language in which they have been taught to describe this situation. And what they don't understand is that the more abstract and theoretical and dogmatic and cliched the language they use is, the less people they're going to win over to their cause. All they will do is make themselves feel terrific. Well, there is, a, there is something exhilarating if you look at the protests and you look at some of the language. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. To revel that way. Now, I think of it like this. No people, including our people, the Jews, are immune to segments of our culture and sometimes even leaders who become either consumed with rage and revel in this kind of killing. However, when Baruch Goldstein launched a massacre, which he was killed in as well, the Israeli government, the Jewish community worldwide, denounced him. And I will say this, and it might be controversial, but if Baruch Goldstein was a Palestinian, there would be murals painted in his honor. And yes, the other thing you have to add is that Baruch Goldstein's photograph is somewhere in Itamar Ben-Gvir's house. And, well, so I want to say, there is a segment, yes, sadly so we, a segment that has been now aligned, and we've talked about this when it happened five years yeah. ago, with Netanyahu's Likud party, which is, which is an historical infamy, I should say, because we know that Begin and other Likud leaders would leave the, the Knesset if, if Marikahana was speaking, who is the sort yeah. of... Ideal. I mean, he's an ideological. We do, but Eli, let's not get ourselves too celebratory about the evil or the limited nature of the rise of Israeli fascism and racism to the level of the government. I mean, you know, I, I, it's certainly true that Begin was a 19th century liberal who believed in democratic governance and procedures and 
you know, and in fact, the book has just appeared in Israel, 400 pages long, which is nothing but excerpts from his writings and speeches. And it's called Begin's Way, the Liberalism of Menachem Begin. And, and so, you know, in his time, I was opposed to Begin. I would kill for him right now. Yes. I mean, really. But yes, look, there is, my view is, there is evil in the human heart. There yes. is. And you don't have, I mean, that is where the analysis has to begin and maybe where Well, I think ends. I began it there. I'm, yes, yes, I'm agreeing yeah, yeah, with okay. you. Okay. No, I'm agreeing with you. No people, including our people, have a special, are, are morally talented so that they are, they are always innocent of, of, of crimes or evil. There are, there is no such people, especially when they acquire state power. Yes. And, you know, my own view is that Israel, by and large, when you look at the way states that are under siege and that are buffeted by all kinds of intellectual and religious currents, when you look at the way Israel had used power by the standard of history, it's been okay. There have been crimes, but we're not going to get into that right now. The other thing I want to say is that in our tradition, there, is, there are injunctions and, and, and commandments about empathy and sympathy and the other that require us as a people right now to have a very different view of the Palestinian people even now than I hear being broadcast from many Jewish sources. So the picture, the picture is complicated. I, I want to concede know. that. My point is that there was horror, and there are there is a rump yes. of people who celebrate Goldstein, and they're Judeo-fascists, I think we would agree. Yes. But that is a minority of... It's a growing minority, and it's represented in the government. But yes, yes. It has been historically a minority. It, it still is a minority. Millions of Israelis have taken to the streets to keep it a minority. And I don't so, want to yes. paint a broad brush because I know many Palestinians personally in my reporting over the years who, who despise Hamas for, very, for Palestinian like independence reasons. They, they, they have their own reasons, of course. Of course but I'm saying that it's not, it's not to say that they, they, they're like, you know, they're Zionists, they're not, but it's that th there is a, there is a lot of Palestinian who despise living under, you know, this crime family. My point is that the, that there has been a history in this conflict of massive atrocities committed against Jews. And then that has been kind of seen as almost a language of liberation. You can go back to the Arab revolt. You can go to the Munich Olympics and we see these moments and they are seen as kind of great acts of self-determination and not mass crimes. And that I think yeah. is, is, a, is a difference between the political cultures of Zionism and the Palestinians. Okay, I, I, I want to complicate that okay. just a little. Okay. First of all, I, it's, when you do the moral analysis, I guess at some point you have to speak quantitatively about who committed a crime more. But of course, every... Every massacre is one massacre too many. Yes. And I don't mean to sound like, like, like somebody who lives in, 
in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but what it is. Yes. Moreover, I think that if the Jews did not commit certain crimes for 2,000 years, it's partly because we lack the power to do so. Fair. And I mean, again, this, I just think, I, again, I'm, you know, you know that as a Jew, I'm not exactly guilty of self-hatred. This is just how I see things. Thirdly, we have to, de- we have to decide what we mean by Israeli perpetrated atrocities. There are the, there's the list of the famous massacres and, you know, all right. And there are debated events in Tantura and Lida. I mean, in, during 48, 49, there are, you know, all right. But then there are, for example, retaliatory raids against Palestinian terrorism in the 70s and the 80s. Well, as I was watching those raids, generally bombings in Lebanon, I was not, I have to say, opposed to retaliatory raids. And I understood that in order to, as we now say, to reestablish deterrence, you want to make your enemy afraid of you. So there is a certain kind of bloodthirstiness that you wish to communicate. I understand that. I don't like it, but I understand that that happened. But one thing I did notice was that a great many more Palestinian and Lebanese civilians were killed in Israel's retaliatory raids than Israelis were killed in the terrorist incidents that provoked them. This is just a fact. Yeah. You know, when I used to, I used to talk to every year at the start of APAC summer program for young people, a friend of mine ran it and I used to, he always asked me to come in and talk to them. And I would always say, listen, brothers and sisters, the first thing you need to know if you're going to go out and defend Israel is that we are not innocent. There's no such thing as an innocent state. We, We, states can be good. And the distinction between goodness and innocence is a distinction you have to keep in mind. And we have to reckon with, with the crimes that we have ourselves committed. So yes, that's fair. Yes. Yeah. So I, yes. So, and the final thing I would add, if we're going to just pause, we're doing this now is but that we're, we're going to get to Fanon in a sec. But that's right. Yeah. We'll get to Fanon. No, no, no. We should. Is that one must be careful not only to sympathize with the Palestinians who live in Gaza. Morally speaking, Gaza is the easy case in the sense that it is outrageously unjust for people to live that way. Now, we can talk about why they're living that way and so on. That's not the point I want to make. It's also unjust for people to live the way Palestinians on the West Bank do. We cannot bifurcate the moral analysis so that we all agree that Hamas, that that Gaza is a hellhole, right? But that what's happening on the West Bank is just fine. It's not remotely fine. It's not remotely fine. And one of the reasons that a large number of the best soldiers in the Israeli army were not in the South when the massacres happened on October 7th was that the, 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 the settler-obsessed, West Bank-obsessed members of the government had removed them to the West Bank, which is sometimes, I think, all they even care about. So 
I just want to complicate the picture this way. No, no, no. You know, that's why I love the we show. Don't have to, as I say, we, we, we don't have to go to bed thinking that we're innocent. We have to go to bed believing that we're more or less good. Right. That's the standard. By the way, so does everybody else. It's not just Jews. Oh, so does everybody I, else. I, I, I appreciate you complicating it. I think All it's right. in times of crisis like this where we feel rage in our hearts and a sense of vengeance that can be sometimes consuming. It's very important. And this gets back to the role of the intellectuals. Right. To right. remind us that nobody's innocent, to remind right. us that nobody has a spotless history, to remind us that there are legitimate grievances on the side of the people who just committed an atrocity. Yes. And that it's not as that we have to resist this idea that leads us to where I think Joseph Mossad or the Cooney Jewish law students are, which is to kind of dehumanize one side of the conflict in order to sort of make everything line up to fit your ideology. And it's a mistake that we've seen again and again from the most brilliant intellectuals, whether it's someone like Jean-Paul Sartre, who, who, who couldn't figure out that Stalin was bad until the late 1950s, or... Well, he knew, he knew, he was a liar. Okay, fair enough. Or, or it's, you know, Heidegger, who was one of our great metaphysicians and one of our great philosophers, and, our, and, and, and if he didn't exist, the Western tradition would be impoverished. But he was somebody who was a member of the Nazi party and, you know, was, was, he was voluntarily part of that he was project. A Nazi. He was, he a, was Nazi. a Nazi. And so, yes. and so that is complicating as well, which is that there can be brilliant, brilliant thinkers that add a richness to our kind of tradition, a republic of letters or our, you know, our, our civilization. And also can use their talents in the service of sheer evil. And that has happened, it seems, a lot in the 20th century and now again in the 21st. 21st century was, you know, in, in, in the 20th century, intellectuals did not cover themselves in glory. Now, it must yeah. be said that one of the reasons I'm so worried about where we are now is that I see a similar intellectual crack up happening in our time. That is to say, what happened in the 1920s and 30s in Europe was not just a mass, not just a breakdown of reason among the intellectuals, but a kind of break up of all the inherited ideas and systems of thought so that things that didn't belong together started going together. So you get something that could be called national socialism, right? Like, which is, you know, except that it existed as a reality should have been viewed as a contradiction in terms, but it wasn't. And it is certainly true that in, in a time of enormous social and economic dislocation, intellectuals lost their heads because they believed that the situation was so bad that new ideas were called for and just about anything could be tried. And I have to say, I see some of this happening right now. But th when that and happens not, in, the, in the 19th century with the utopians, it's not well, nearly as horrible. No, not at all. I mean, the yeah. utopians were often their fantasy. You know, it's, um, you know, they were powerless. They commanded no armies. Yeah. 
you know, what they had to worry about were marks and angles. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we're not going to talk about the current situation now, but in my view, the repudiation and dismemberment or attempted dismemberment of liberalism that is taking place now reminds me of the behavior of intellectuals in Europe in the 20s and 30s. And we could discuss that another time. We should discuss that another time. I'm, Let's yeah. discuss that another time. I think that, look, have you read a book of Fanon's called Black Skin, White Mask? So in this week, I started diving back in and I haven't read all of it's it. It's a brilliant book. And the right. ending last 10 pages He's of a that humanist. Book, he is a profound humanist. The things he writes at the end, the last 10 pages of that book should shatter every stereotype of Fanon and of that, you know, tiermondist intellectual that people run around with. I mean, you know, he has things at the end of that book about how he will not and should not and must not devote his life to the close study of the grievances about the past, that he must liberate, that he should not. He, he does not wish to waste his life on the crimes of 17th century slave traders. So we should, I should mean, we back up on just who Fanon, I oh, guess we would say, is thanks a, for he's a social psychologist. Well, he's a, he's a, he's, he's a social psychologist. He's a trained doctor and psychoanalyst. Right. Trained in France, but born in Martinique. He's a Francophone intellectual from Martinique who was educated in France who serves with the Free French Army yes. in World War II, who calls himself a Frenchman, who then is, takes up a post in Algeria in 1953, I think, and lives in Algeria for all of four years. I have a, a brilliant essay coming up in an issue about a Jewish Tunisian intellectual called Albert Memmi, who was Fanon's interlocutor. Yes, that's right. Was a very, very important figure that I want people to read again. But, but in any case, he goes to Algeria in 51 and in 53, and he lives in Algeria for all of four years, the great Algerian revolutionary. Yes. He becomes a revolutionary. He joins the FLN. He edits a revolutionary newspaper. And in 57, the French authorities expel him. He goes back to Tunis. He writes The Wretched of the Earth, which was his last book. And believe it or not, he dies in Bethesda, Maryland in 1961. Oh, where he was, being he was being treated for leukemia. Yeah. So now we should he, say that, that Fanon does not take the road of an Albert Camus, who is also horrified by the situation no, in Algeria. Oh, that's correct. That's Camus correct. in his great essay, Neither Victims Nor Executioners, That's I correct. think is upholding the intellectual spirit by decrying what he considers to be a false choice. And yes. Fanon, in some ways you could say, says, no, there is a choice. He chose. And yeah. he, he chooses. Yeah, he chooses. And he supported revolutionary violence. And that is uh, why he is so... He's, you know, reify. He's 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 considered a hero today. Well, he's the post colonial god. Yes, that's who he is. Of course, like, but he is so much more than his disciples and his worshippers believe he is. And even in Wretched of the Earth, 
he complicates things. It's not as it's the first chapter is what everybody always is quoting from. Right. Exactly. Bravo. Half of that book is a withering critique of his own people, of his own community. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, you know, and it is a book that reminds me of a classic of or a late 19th century Zionism called Auto Emancipation, also by a doctor, by a Russian Jewish doctor who was who argued that while the Jews are busy trying to have the powers emancipate them, they have to emancipate themselves. Right. And Anon had that argument, the very argument, the very argument. I mean, I read, I'm been fascinated by Fanon for decades. And, uh, you know, and, as, and the last 10 pages, the last chapter of Black Skin, White Masks are some of the most stirring humanist, universalist pages I've ever read. Yes. And they should be shoved in the face of all kinds of, of progressives. Right. I think they know who Fanon was. You know, like other people, like Malcolm, yeah, who evolved. Yes, although evolved. it's interesting, he evolved in a different way than Fanon did. He, but he evolved in a more humanist way. Yes, when he came back from Mecca, the things he said were universalist and humanist and softer. Yes, and he underwent a change. There was an evolution there. Right. And it's a little bit parallel. Now, in the case of Fanon, I fear the evolution went the other way because Black Skin, White Masks was published, I think, in 51 or 52, whereas The Wretched of the Earth was the last book he wrote. Yes. So, you know, people evolved differently. But, you know, Fanon is, you know, one, one could give one way of giving a seminar about what's happening today and about the state of progressive thinking about oppressed peoples, post-colonial peoples, the global South, yes, and so on. It's all from Fanon. Would be to give a seminar on Fanon. Yes. Would be to gather some really intelligent people with open minds around the table and read Fanon. And he's also somebody who, by the way, I think begins the first, we hear it all the time now, lived experiences. That's a Fanonism, I think. Yeah, look, Fanon's an interesting case in the sense that he reinvented himself as an Algerian. Yes. I mean, it was, you know, people think of him as the Algerian revolutionary. But as I say, he was only in Algeria for four years. He was from Martinique. And he, He by the way, writes in Black Skin, uh, White Masks, that he didn't experience the kind of racism in Martinique. No, that's right. That he would later experience in France. That's right. That's right. And so he is a very interesting and complicated case and a case also of invented identity. Now, people can change their identities. You know, we believe in the possibility of conversion. Identity does not mean that you end exactly where you began. However, Sanon is a very interesting case. He really is. He really is. Now, did Sanon obviously had an enormous effect on especially the French intellectuals that come after him. And we do see a tendency, and I'm thinking now of Michel Foucault, and Foucault, who is leading this incredibly libertine lifestyle, he was gay, he, he loved the leather scene in, Sanford, in Berkeley, 
becomes an ally and and a rationalizer for the Islamic revolution in 1979. And some people can say, well, we didn't know how, what they would do, but that's not true. Bernard Lewis was writing about this. Other people who had been paying attention to what the man was saying knew what he was about, and Iranians sadly soon learned. But can we blame Fanon in some ways, or maybe you could say the misinterpretation of Wretched of the Earth? No, I don't think Fanon can be blamed for Foucault. Okay. I mean, no, no. And I, anyway, I think that, especially in the case of somebody like Fanon, it's only, in, it's only fair to read what he wrote and recognize his complexities. I think that's, uh, I, I, I'm agreeing with you, but I'm saying that. Yeah, I know you are. I know, I know. But I know, there I know. was, I mean, sometimes, you know, Tom Wolfe called this radical Look. chic when it applied to New York social scenes, but it was the idea that there was something exotic, authentic. There certainly was. In violent in the revolution. In the late 60s and early 70s, a rom- the romance of oppressed peoples. Yes. The romance of the third world. This, by the way, was the idea that Memi ferociously argued against. Oh, well, this Which will be a very, this will be a, a must read even in though, Even though Memi was the author of a once famous book called The Colonizer and the Colonized, he himself eventually rejected that kind of dichotomy, that sort of binary, pointing out that the oppressed are not monolithic, the oppressors are not monolithic, the oppressed, even after independence, also oppress themselves and each other. Memi broke with Fanon, whom he knew. They were both psychologists in Tunis at one point, whom he he broke with that simplistic Manichaean definition of reality. And right. again, we get back to the idea of descriptions of reality. So I remember in 1979, not just Foucault, but American right. intellectuals, I mean, Edward Said, Richard Falk, there was, a, there was yeah. an army of apologists for Khomeini. And one of the things I noticed is how well the Marxist vocabulary served them because they had come to believe, they had grown up believing, though Said was not exactly a Marxist, but this was in the humanities, that religion and culture are epiphenomena. Right. They believed in the base and the superstructure. And what was happening in Iran, even if Khomeini was promising to, to kill prostitutes and to kill homosexuals and to shut down the society. This is the superstructure at base. This, at bottom, this was an event among, in the base, which made it essentially a social and economic revolution. Yes. And so they could persuade themselves that Khomeini's wild threats and, and really bloodthirsty pronouncements were simply an epiphenomenal expression of a good old-fashioned social and economic people's revolution. Now, lo and behold, as we, as people, other people knew, at least for a hundred years, sometimes people do not act on economic and social realities. They act on religious and cultural realities. Yes. They act on what we now call identity. Right. Which is what Donald Trump understood mutating the mutanda. And Hillary Clinton did not. That people who have been, been distressed for three generations don't want policy. They want affirmation, recognition, vindication, revenge. They want all sorts of things. And some people recognize that there was nothing epiphenomenal 
about Khomeini and about the Ayatollahs and about this about the religious dimension of this revolution. And sure enough, when they took power, Khomeini did exactly what he said he would do. Now, yeah. this was a lesson that we should have learned from Hitler, who basically set out his larger program in a 400-page book. And early, I mean, Hitler didn't deviate from the values or the, the fantasies right. of Mein Kampf. It's there. It's there. But liberals especially, and certainly progressives, who like to pride themselves on being exceptionally rational people, they don't like to deal with the unreason in the world. Some people get scared of it. They oh, don't so you, so it's, it's you're saying like they, they don't, they avert their eyes. Well, they, they've got to squeeze development into the box of rationality. And so, so social right. economic grievances are rational grievances if and when they are. When right, they are, right? But the idea that the Shah must be overthrown and Iran must be shut down so that the imam can return from occultation, that is not a rational idea. Right. And, you know, so, and again, I remember all of the excitement about Khomeini in 79, putting aside the, a certain legitimate dislike of the Shah, though God knows it was an easy choice, but but there were people who didn't know how to deal with this. And so they insisted that what they were watching was familiar to them in their terms. Right. And they misread it completely. And if you spend so much, so much time, you know, in the vineyards building your, an ideological system or learning an ideological system, it's yeah. very difficult to give that up if you're it's dealing with somebody who doesn't fit into it. That it's, which is why we should have more respect than we do for heretics and dissenters. Oh, 100%. it is not easy. You know, when you look at what Kessler did in 36 and the other people who were brave enough, brave enough to break with Stalin yeah. over the show trials early, you know, and you look at, at you look at heretics and dissenters in any community, including our own. Yes. Including our own. It can't just be that other people's dissenters are heroic and that our dissenters are traitors. No. But, you know, it's very hard. And it, it's very hard. I mean, you're rejecting the mentality, the language, the vocabulary, the culture in which you have either been raised or in which you have marinated yourself for decades. And they're usually your early decades when things sink very, very deep into one. That, that is, a, and so I want to end our conversation kind of going back to, maybe we can talk a little bit about what you just said, which is to say, when I think of the intellectuals like yourself, Robert Conquest, George Orwell, they Thank were you. willing to stand alone. They were willing to descend from the herd. And as a result, they- Some of them at great physical risk. Yes, that too. European ones, they, they were really in danger. Absolutely. And that patina of kind of noble descent, well, it still is a halo around our universities today and intellectuals, even though so many of them have kind of deformed that idea. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, we university professors love to act as if they're like always speaking truth to power. 
even when it's this kind of gobbledygook that we have seen in the last 10 days with regards to the pogrom. So, you know, I guess my question to you is going, maybe just explain, like, you know, like, do we have to remind ourselves what the role of an intellectual really is and maybe begin a process of calling out those who have betrayed a fundamental value that sort of makes all intellectuals possible, if that makes sense. Yeah, I look, I think a couple of things have to be said. It's a big question. Yeah. In the first place, I think people should start thinking a little more critically and clearly about this slogan about speaking truth to power. It is important to speak truth to power when power is wrong. The idea that power is always wrong is not a serious idea. Agreed. Unless you're an anarchist. Right. So, you know, when power is wrong, say so. When power is right, you know, if you think the United States, if it's 1941, 42, and you think the United States is right to go into the war in Europe, that the government is doing the right thing, say so. And don't worry about being accused of being a government stooge or a conformist. Right. The first thing that matters, the thing that matters most is the truth or the falsity of the opinion that we're talking about. Right. That's the first thing that always matters. You know, and as Maimonides said, accept the truth from whoever utters it. Yep. That is the first principle. Then this question of the, the idea that universities, especially American universities, are hotbeds of independent thinking is so risible. Yeah. I mean, I can think of very few institutions that are more conformist. And I mean, willingly conformist. I'm not talking about suppressions of speech or, or you know, when you get into various right. kinds of coercion. But the notion that, 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 that American universities, as I say, are centers of nonconformist, independent thinking is ridiculous. They haven't been that in a very long time. Now, it is true that everybody who has an opinion about everything conforms to some group who shares that opinion. And after a while, it becomes kind of uninteresting. But it's not a lifetime membership. It's not a lifetime membership. And certainly, the universities and American academic life should, should sort of, you know, put its head down and, and get off its high horse and stop preening about the, it, it, it's, it's mental freedom. Because even though, you know, they are free to think as independently as they wish, generally they do not. Generally they do not. And right. it's become a serious problem. I mean, I, you know, there are a few things that I, you know, if I, if I prayed every morning, one of the things that I would thank the Lord for is that I'm not in college now. Well, yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about, for example, the decline of the humanities, well, a large part of the blame for that cultural crisis belongs to the humanists and what they've done with the humanity and so on. So, no, I mean, I think that the truth is in intellectual life, I years ago came to the conclusion that the real intellectuals, you find them where they are. They can be in the university. They can be outside the university. You know, the Arabs have a wonderful problem that the donkeys smell each other across seven valleys. Yeah. yeah. You know, we identify, we, you know, we look for each other. We find each other 
there's never, we're never, I mean, again, I don't mean to flatter myself, but it's never a large population of people anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, we know the names of the great heroic dissidents, say, in the 1930s in Europe against Stalin and against Hitler. But I dare say, until you get way later, till the 50s, we know most of the names. These people were in a minority and in an endangered minority. In America, you know, dissenters are not endangered. They flatter right. themselves they are. All that happens is you don't get invited to a dinner party, which pales in comparison to assassination. But anyway, you know, there are always very few. They, they are where you find them. They will be known by their writings. I think that's right. They yeah. will be known by their writings. It's as simple as that. I mean, you know, it's... and. You, you, and you slowly build your community, your company of people who have a similar spirit about intellectual life. I'm not saying you build your community of opinion because within the community I'm talking about, there are differences of opinion. But people do agree about the nature of the intellectual calling. Okay, so, so final question and to bring it to the present. If you were Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, who I thought, you know, sort of, you know, she's I, I off just, to a bad start. She, I don't want to say disgrace, it's maybe too, but she did not cover herself in glory in her comments about these Harvard undergraduate student groups that really showed, as you said, the kind of heartlessness in their first response and their statements and so forth. Now, my view is that you should not ban these groups, you shouldn't censor them. No. Or take I, down their names. Yeah, but what would you, what would, what would, you know, President Weaseltier say about that if you were asked for a statement in light of what was happening? I would say my first response is complete revulsion. Right. And that I speak as a human being before the president being, before I speak as the president of Harvard or any other one of, any other of my identity attributes. Right. And that. What happened there was revolting and sickening and should never happen to anybody anywhere. And it, 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 and it precedes all politics. Right. And it precedes all politics because, believe it or not, even now, when we suffer from the greatest over-politicization of life right. that we've ever experienced, there are things, human things, that precede politics. I know it's hard to contemporary. Americans to understand that, but there are, right? I mean, you have a baby girl, right? No, yes. you have a baby girl. You know that there are many things that precede politics. Absolutely. And that one lives for, and that one lives for. So that's what I would have said. That's what I would have said. I would have said that we will be very alert to, to attempt to censor or suppress speech on this campus of any kind. We expect our students to argue their positions with each other or not, if they choose not to. And we, we expect a certain amount of decency to characterize those arguments because this is a university, not, not a dark alley where we rumble. Right. And so on. I mean, you know, the joke is this would have been easy to do. Yes. The problem is that university administrators are terrified to their bones of the students and the staffs at their universities. Yeah. They're afraid of them. They, they cannot, 
They're afraid of the ire of their students. They're afraid of them. And that's not leadership. That's followership. Yeah. You know, whatever you think about, I was thinking the other day, whatever you think about what happened in the 1960s in the universities, at least the university administrators had the decency to offer some resistance to the more extreme students right. who were attacking buildings and libraries. Right. There was not, oh, you'd like to sack the library? Tell me which floor you'd like to go access to first. I'll give you the key. I mean, you know, they are in university administrators now. They are invertebrate people. They are invertebrate in front of students. They are invertebrate in front of donors. They are invertebrate people. I mean, what was so offensive to me was that Harvard has had a terrible record in recent years on free speech on campus. And then she she sort of, you know, used the free speech as the fig leaf not to condemn them. Now, I, I happen to agree I'm consistent on the principle, but yeah. it rang so hollow. And then for the students, I mean, this is the same crowd that will say the presence of a speaker that they don't agree with is causing them harm. To come out with a statement like this, knowing that they have Jewish neighbors, knowing that there no. are going to be students in pain and human beings just aren't who aren't Jews. They're going to be feeling immense grief about what had just happened to put out something, a statement so grotesque from the same crowd that will claim that it's that, you know, you, you've committed a war crime if you misgender them. And the that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. But that to me is the part of it where I just look at this and I say, can't you can't see this inconsistency? You can't see how you've twisted yourself into a pretzel to justify yeah. one thing that is horrific while saying that a thing that isn't horrific is 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 the worst thing ever. I mean, it to me is it's inexplicable. The problem for these people, and you see it also with celebrities, with politicians who get into trouble is they think the proper response to a moral crisis is crisis management. Oh, that's so good. You know, I'm yeah. going to write a little bit about that. That's very good, yeah. And so their first approach is that we have a problem. Get me the, the, the PR people, get the lawyers on the phone. You know, what do we put out? How do we put out this fire? That's right. how they approach it. They don't approach it as an opportunity to act as moral leaders in the way, by the way, that university presidents, presidents many decades ago used to try to be yes, with, with lesser or greater success. Nobody would ever describe any longer a university president as one of the moral authorities in American society. No. That's yeah. over. That's right. over. And because, as I say, they treat a moral crisis as in need of crisis management. And it's, it's pathetic. It, it, it's it really pathetic. is. It's really pathetic. And, you know, I feel sorry for them. You know, I don't, I mean, I, I really do. Now, yeah. some of the university administrators feel that this is, that they, they seek to be in conformity with certain trends of opinion on their campus and to represent them and lead them as if that were the role of a university president. Right. Right. So. But no, it's, you know, when you make the list, which I'm constantly doing, it gets shorter and shorter of who, what are the sources of moral authority in American society now? A university presidents are not on that list anymore. Sadly. They really aren't. 
Well, I think that that's a good place to end it. I, I can't thank you enough, Leon. This was a wonderful Pleasure conversation. And I really hope our listeners learn something. And I certainly do, as I always do when we talk. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.